Hello, and welcome to the ID Talk podcast. My name is Peter Counter, and I am the editor-in-chief of Fine Biometrics, the internet's leading publisher of biometrics and identity management news, interviews, and analysis. At Fine Biometrics, we trace the evolution of our dynamic industry as it happens, and with the catalyzing pressures of the COVID-19 pandemic spotlighting the need for biometrics, now is the perfect time to reflect on the past, present, and future of identity. That's the subject of today's episode of ID Talk, in which I interview Russ McGonigal, Senior Product Manager of Biometric Hardware at HID Global, about the ongoing history of biometrics and identity. Starting with the origin of biometric matching during the dawn of modern forensics, McGonigal and I explore ideas of privacy, trust, and security across the law enforcement, military, and civil identity sectors. It's a wide-ranging, educational conversation, and I know you'll learn something new from it. So without further ado, I am pleased to present HID Global's Russ McGonigal right here on the ID Talk podcast. I am joined today by Russ McGonigal, Senior Product Manager for Biometric Hardware at HID Global. Russ, thank you for joining me today on ID Talk. Thank you so much. So I want to start by talking about biometrics and law enforcement. Law enforcement is the origin of biometric matching as we know it. And prior to the explosion of consumer authentication solutions in the 2010s, the fingerprint was synonymous with detective work. My first question is, how has biometric law enforcement evolved? Okay, thank you very much for that question. And uh, looking forward to our podcast here. And if you don't mind, just gonna spend a few minutes talking about some really high level history. Uh, Certainly we could spend an entire podcast on the history of biometrics and especially in terms of law enforcement. But I thought it would be interesting to provide just a few details of how it began. So the, the first sort of spot of, uh, of law enforcement biometrics comes in the late 1880s or the late 1800s. And a person named Dr. Henry Fowles, who was from Scotland, published a, a, an article in the journal Nature about fingerprinting. And Fowles was working in Japan as a medical missionary. And for example, he introduced Joseph Lister's antiseptic method to Japanese surgeons. So it gives you a sense of the uh, time period. In the late 1870s, he went along with a friend uh, named Edward Morse to an archaeological dig. And he noticed that on some of the clay fragments they were digging up that there was uh, fingerprints embossed in the clay. So that made him curious about fingerprints. And then an interesting thing happened at the hospital he was working at in Japan or somebody broke into the hospital, and one of the people that worked there was accused, and he thought the man was innocent. And so he ended up proving it by comparing the prints that were found at the crime scene to the person's prints who had been accused. So that was not the first crime solved, but sort of the first innocent person that was able to prove his innocence. And so Faust became really interested in fingerprints, and he sent some ideas to Charles Darwin, and Charles Darwin was pretty old at the time. He was 71 at that time, and he actually only lived a few more years. So Darwin uh, passed this along to a, a person named Francis Galton, who was a relative of his. And Galton uh, was interested in it, and then a few years later, he ended up spending 10 years studying it, and he published a book called Fingerprints in 1892. And that book is still available on Amazon. You can download it for your Kindle. I've done that. <laughs> it's actually a very uh, interesting book, so I encourage people to do that. Uh, but, you know, that was sort of the, the first time where somebody really poured a lot of scientific inquiry into, into fingerprints. And there was another person in the story, I won't give too many details, but just one more. So there was a person named William Herschel, who was a British officer, and he was working in India in the 1850s and later 
And he was able to use fingerprints for contracts. A lot of the people in India at the time were illiterate. So he was able to help um, make things more legal by um, allowing people to use fingerprints on, on contracts. So there's a little bit of controversy on who gets credit for the, the invention of modern fingerprinting between those two and maybe a few others. But the uh, first person, Fouds, published the thing in the journal. So that, that always uh, wins in science. So just one last note before we move on a little bit. There's, there's the, the first crime to ever be solved by fingerprints was in 1892. Uh, this one was in Argentina, and uh, it was based on a woman named Francesca Rojas. And she had accused her neighbor of murdering her two children. And so the police chief at the time, a man named Juan Vucic, uh, he, as he was investigating, he noticed that there was a brown stain at the crime scene that had a fingerprint in it. And then he was able to match that fingerprint to Rojas. Turns out that she murdered her own children so that she could marry a man um, who uh, was interested in her but didn't want to be a father. So that was a pretty gruesome story, uh, but interesting. So that, that was the first crime. But then in terms of the progression into the, the modern uh, fingerprinting, it was really J. Edgar Hoover, the, the first director of the FBI, who made it a proper law enforcement. So just a little bit of background on Hoover, because it's interesting in leading how, how the science works. So Hoover was born in um, 1895, and he grew up in Washington, D.C., and he spent his whole life in Washington, D.C. So his first job when he was 18 was working, for a working as a messenger at the Library of Congress uh, near where he lived in Washington, D.C. It's just a half a mile from his house. And the Library of Congress at that point was just updating their filing system to the card catalog system, like the Dewey system. And they were producing 700,000 cards per year to send to libraries around the U.S. So Hoover was involved in this as a, sort of a clerk. Uh, but he later said that uh, he saw the value of collecting information uh, about books. And then that, that ended up going into, the, into law enforcement and the fingerprint records. So Hoover went on to get a, an undergraduate degree in law and then a Master of Laws from George Washington. And then after, after he graduated, he was hired by the Justice Department in the War Division. This is right around the time of World War I. So his first job was to find and track disloyal foreigners. And then a little later, he became the head of the Bureau of Investigations General Intelligence Division, where he switched his focus to find and track domestic radicals. So these are people that were communists inside of the United States. So his job was to find out those people and look for them. So he used his experience and his knowledge at the Library of Congress, and then he created a big card-based, an index card-based organizational system to track the individuals. And he invented a bunch of codes to track which people were doing which bad things for all kinds of offenses. And then that was really the precursor to all of the law enforcement codes that are still in use today. So by 1921, Hoover had, had 450,000 cards, <laughs> so really a lot of cards. So there, there is some controversy here, and we're going we're to talk about privacy a bit more in our conversation here. So th there is a question of whether or not Hoover has crossed the line between privacy and law enforcement. And this is a point of tension uh, that still exists today at various places in various countries. So that was interesting to kind of understand all that to begin with. Uh, but just, just to complete the thought on the history, the, the manual system of collecting fingerprints started in 1924, and uh, those fingerprint cards using ink and paper remained the same for a long time, all the way up until 1999. That's when the FBI had launched the IAFIS in conjunction with NIST, and, and then companies started producing live-scan temperance scanners. So that's really the, the modern era started uh, right there in 1999. And then once those devices were available, everything got easier technology-wise. And then that'll lead to other applications like the, the civil one and, you know, all the way up to the iPhone sensor and authentication solutions and stuff like that. And then just one last uh, note, the, the, not the most recent, but a, a more recent technology spinoff of all of this is Rapid ID, 
Um, so it's one thing to arrest somebody and then take their fingerprints and send it into the FBI. But um, with the IAFIS, it became technologically possible to identify people quickly. That's why it's called rapid ID. So police officers can now stop people on the side of the road and do a quick check against the FBI database to find out if somebody has a criminal record or not. So that's, that's one of the more modern um, technologies. Well, thank you for that. It's, it's always incredible to, to think about how deep the history goes for biometrics, specifically fingerprints in law enforcement, and, and sure. how much the fundamentals are still there. Uh, like you mentioned, yep. one of the other things that's very much the same is some of the controversy and ethical questions. Privacy and biometric data go hand in hand, and that's particularly true in law enforcement where uh, there are important considerations to take into account when deploying biometric technology, especially facial recognition. What do you see as the key privacy considerations for biometrics and how should they affect the way that biometrics are deployed by the police? Yeah, sure. Yeah, this is definitely a key topic and uh, comes up quite a bit at the biometric conferences on the right uh, ethical line between security and privacy. And, uh, you know, a clear example of this is in, in the U.S. at least, and I'm sure a lot of other countries, is that our, our government agencies have really explicit laws on, you know, spying on U.S. citizens. And if, if you know, if a U.S. citizen is, is talking to somebody on the phone from another country, and they, they still have to get explicit permission from judges. And even then, it's supposed to only be in extreme cases. So there's a lot of focus on, on privacy. In, in the U.S., the Privacy Act of 1974 is passed. Um, this isn't directly related to biometrics. It's more about just collecting information on people kind of goes back to Hoover's cards where he was collecting information on everybody. Um, so there, when you get information for a citizen, then, then you have to be really explicit that, that you're holding it and people have to agree to it, et cetera. Um, so, you know, J. Edgar Hoover was really famous for crossing the line many times. And we can imagine that uh, his view is that protecting the overall society for criminals is more important than protecting the privacy of a single, single individual. So I think that's kind of the key line there is that their privacy of a single individual is, you know, is, is, is it more or less valuable than protecting somebody that's committing crimes. And different countries handle this differently. In the U.S., if you're arrested and then you're found to be innocent later, then, then by law, your records have to be deleted. Um, so there's a bunch of laws that may, may be part of that is because of Hoover and uh, the overreach of the government. Um, but different governments around the world have different levels of laws. Again, we talk about this quite a bit at conferences. So... You know, we just we, we try to stay neutral in terms of the technology, but it's important that we we help you know different uh, countries to be educated so that they can help their governments to make the right decisions for that. And I just want to mention a few things. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that San Francisco outlawed face recognition with the idea that it goes too far in terms of privacy. And uh, we'll see if this trend continues to other cities or states. Some countries have gone in the extreme opposite direction where they use face recognition to constantly scan crowds looking for fugitives or jaywalkers or anybody doing something bad, even socially. So it's up to each country to, to choose the laws that are appropriate for them, but you know, it's, uh, it's just difficult. And in, in the U.S. and in Europe, there's entry exit programs going on to know that uh, foreign visitors that are entering the country or Europe have left the country. So the way that that is going to be solved is likely to be face recognition. That's the easiest way to capture a lot of people at a time. So as you're leaving Europe or you're leaving the United States, then if your face is captured, uh, the government is required to delete that record right away. That still makes some people uh, nervous. So we have to be careful about that. And the European Union has GDPR, and uh, that, that has seven principles for lawful processing of personal data. And the central idea behind all of it is the privacy by default. So in this case, they're valuing privacy over 
security, maybe. It's just privacy is number one. But in terms of policing, uh, privacy should still remain very important. The, the systems and practices that people use you know, should be good to ensure that each person, even if they've committed a crime, is protected. And I just want to mention one other thing without going into this too much, but um, certainly social media is a form of identification, not a fingerprint or a face recognition. I guess face recognition is involved in it. But law enforcement officers have access to social media just like everybody else does. So um, is it fair game for, for law enforcement officers to search through social media and learn more about people? You know, there's a there's a discussion to be had and that that's gonna that's gonna keep going on. But you know, as always, biometrics is a tool and so um, it should be used uh, responsibly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that last note on social media, I mean it it speaks to sort of the broader situation that we find ourselves in as an industry and and honestly as a planet you know not all of our ethics uh, our ethical frameworks are necessarily smoothly transitioning into this new hybrid digital physical world we've been speaking about privacy a lot right here and and that's something that's an ongoing conversation that's been going on for half a century at least and meanwhile we are experiencing something that's relatively unprecedented, especially in terms of modern biometrics. I suppose the Spanish flu pandemic was going on after the invention of the of the fingerprint. However, mm. right now with the COVID-19 pandemic spring change in all aspects of our life, how has the need for hygiene and social distance changed the biometric law enforcement landscape? Yeah, this is an interesting question. So certainly, first of all, uh, with COVID-19, we, you know, we've been answering many questions and uh, you know, us and all other biometric companies have published ways to make sure that the scanners being used can be sanitized properly in between each use. And this is fairly easy for law enforcement officers. Uh, you can clean the scanners uh, between each person that's being booked. It's a hard conversation when we're talking about civil applications and especially people that are traveling when you have a, you know, a full airplane load of people that have to come in and touch a scanner. And the U.S. and other places have already started using face recognition more for that. So I think that's that's headed in the right direction anyway. But in terms of law enforcement, there really isn't a way to get around having to touch a fingerprint or a palm scanner uh, after you've been arrested, um, at least for now. The uh, NIST just released the second of two papers regarding the contactless technology. And there's desktop contactless technologies, and there's cell phone contactless technologies, and then there's contact devices. So those are the three levels. And no surprises, uh, you know, NIST confirms that the touch devices generate the best quality fingerprints. So in terms of being arrested, uh, you need to have the best quality fingerprints. You're often matching it against a very faint or a very light or a very partial imprint. So you, you can't have, you can't sacrifice anything on quality. You really need to get the very best quality that you can. So the, the FBI has just recently, along with NIST, said that they, they wouldn't allow you to be enrolled on a contactless scanner and get entered into the database. And even uh, for a rapid ID um, situation, you know, we, we thought that maybe you could take a picture using a cell phone and then submit that into the database to do a check. And uh, so far, they've said no to that as well. So they, they, they are giving out a, a PIV certification for contactless, but only for civil applications. So for, for now, COVID is, has not affected law enforcement too much, but uh, we'll see as the technology improves if it, it can be different in the future. That's really fascinating when it comes down to that because it really highlights the difference in, in purpose between the civil applications, which we'll get into a little bit later, and the law enforcement applications, especially you know uh, identification versus authentication, et cetera.
With HID's biometric identity solutions, military and law enforcement officials have the ability to enroll and identify individuals wherever they are. HID's solutions are built to meet the demands of harsh environments with robust and ergonomic design. From the streets to the courtroom, reliable identification helps deliver justice and create safer societies. To learn more, visit hidglobal.com citizen-identity. And now, back to the podcast. For now, I'd like to kind of pivot just slightly to talk about biometrics in the military. Military applications of biometrics have some overlap with police use of biometrics. My question is, how are military use cases for biometrics similar to law enforcement use cases? Yeah, sure. So certainly the main focus of law enforcement is in solving crimes, and uh, it's often connected to latent prints or some other evidence left behind at scenes. I know there's more and more video out there that helps police officers, so there's some face recognition that may go on there as well. And the military solves crimes, of course. There's military police. And uh, the main focus, I think, for the military is identifying people and understanding how they, they're moving about the world and who they're talking to and, and what's happening as they go from place to place. And the military tries to catch people, too, that have committed a crime, uh, but it's, it's more often using watch lists. Not always, but uh, that, that seems to be the case. And then once somebody is identified, then, then we have all of our records for, for those people that have been terrorists or committed some crimes. And then we have those that uh, allow us to protect the people from getting into the country as they're entering um, the country. So those are some of the ways that uh, biometrics are similar. And how are they different between these cases? I think the main thing is what I just mentioned is the, the watch list. If you're in the military, you may be in a remote place or uh, not connected to the Internet. So that we, they're more often using watch lists that are downloaded onto the devices. Not always, but that, that, that needs to be a requirement in a different way than it is with police. And then uh, they're more often offline, as I was mentioning. And they're more often uh, mission-oriented. They're, they're doing a specific task. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Continuing with this sort of compare and contrast, when it comes to military deployments of biometrics, how does the privacy discussion we were just having change? Well, I think here, if we talk about the the balance between security and privacy, you're talking about the people that are inside Europe or inside the United States, then privacy is is the number one. Um, So the military, I think it's maybe the other way. Uh, We want to make sure that our countries are secured and that that may be favored a little bit more. But that doesn't mean that privacy should be ignored. And even in the in the U.S., we've, we've asked everybody that's entering the country since 2004, after September 11th, of course, to provide their uh, fingerprints. So we need to make sure that those people that are, that are giving their biometrics and their biographics are also protected. And uh, we can go back to Europe's GDPR. So this is important to the militaries as well. Not that we have militaries operating in Europe as much as other places, but when they are, then they're still under the rules of GDPR. And same thing goes for U.S. citizens in the U.S. But just one other thing I wanted to mention in terms of military, just as a, a note, is you know, as the, the technology increases. It's not just about fingerprints and face recognition and maybe iris. Those are the ones that are usually collected. But there's more emerging technologies that you know, measure anatomical and physiological and behavioral characteristics that allow people to be identified based on their gait or even their heartbeat, or you can um, shoot a laser at somebody from a really far distance and measure their heartbeat and then get get an identification sense. So it, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with social uh, media. You know, the, the internet contains a lot of information about the identity of people. 
so the um, the technology used there is similar here that um, you know there's there's other ways you know it was just fingerprints that was kind of the, the thing all the way up until 1999 so then it was fairly easy to get somebody's permission or if they're arrested then you and you can compel them but um, with all these other things it's easier to do that so the, the military is taking advantage of the technology but again it's in the interest of protecting citizens over privacy so i think that's the, the reason it's different Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, one of the most interesting things when we talk about the military use of any technology, but biometrics especially, is how quickly they evolve and you can really start to see those like bleeding edge technologies years and years before they entered the commercial sector. I know we've seen proof of concept for authentication based on ECG and, and whatnot, but when it comes yeah. to actually seeing it used, it's it's always extremely fascinating and it's just moving so rapidly. My question to sort of close off this, this line on the military is how do you expect the military's use of biometrics to evolve in the coming five years? Yeah, I think just what you're saying, so the, the technology will continue to uh, increase and the military will always take the latest technology if it's going to help them in their mission, which is probably how it should be. But just a few other thoughts, you know, we know from our own experience here at HIV Global that the military is looking to, to use more off-the-shelf technology. So it's maybe a little better to use things that are less rugged, but, you know, therefore less expensive and be consumable just to, you know, they're probably conscious just like everybody is. So, you know, we've, we've noted that in our own ability to sell to them. And, you know, the, the, both the military and the technology companies are trying to find the right balance of this in, in this regard. You know, ruggedness is important. Uh, but uh, also being able to enable more soldiers to have more capability is important. So I think getting the balance between uh, that is, is right. And um, uh, that, that is certainly evolving as, as we go on. HID's high-quality biometric identity solutions improve enrollment and identification capabilities along every citizen's identity journey, delivering more efficient, convenient, and secure processes. To learn more, visit hidglobal.com slash citizen-identity. And now, back to the podcast. I'd like to kind of bring these these two much more historical spaces of biometric innovation and, and pivot it into much more of a, an everyday life scenario. How did biometrics jump from law enforcement and military use cases to civilians? Uh, yeah, this is a good question. So I, I want to add a third thing to our privacy versus security balance, and that is convenience. And I think that's the overall answer to your question is that it, you know civilians allow for convenience. So I'll talk about some examples. But I think, um, and you mentioned authentication. We, so far, we've been talking mostly about enrollment and identification. Uh, these are more government-focused ways of doing things, but then there's verification and authentication uh, as well. And certainly, the the most uh, big advance of this was the, with authentication with the iPhone, and then uh, other phones, of course. First, using the fingerprint sensor, and then the, the face recognition. But before all of that happened, I think the first big use case for civilians was the employee background check. So you can see if the person that you're hiring for a government job, first of all, so if you're if you're going to be inducted into the military or you're going to work for the federal government. For a long time, it's been a requirement that you give a biometric to do a background check. And that's expanded more, uh, like at the state level, if you're going to become a teacher, if you're going to become a nuclear plant worker, if you're working in finance, handling large amounts of money, all those employers have a vested interest in making sure that the person doesn't have a criminal history. 
So once the AI APHIS came online and you could do a very fast check of somebody's fingerprints and other biometrics against the FBI's database, then it became technologically and economically feasible to do the background checks. So the, the, I think the first big thing was the employee background check. And then not, not too long after that, the concept was taken a step further with the TSA pre-check and the global entry and then other travel programs around the world. So in this case, this goes to where the convenience is. With TSA pre-check, then you can skip having to take your shoes and your belt and your laptop out and all those things, which is a, a minor thing, but a major <laughs> thing for people that travel often. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, so in that case, you can willingly go to the FBI and say, hey, please check me against uh, the FBI's database and prove that you have no criminal history. And then you get a really big benefit, which is easier to go through the airport. So there is, in theory, you're losing some privacy. You're giving a record to the FBI when you didn't need to. Uh, but not having to take your shoes off is worth it for, for a lot of people. Uh, that, I think that was the first, you know, real a good thing to get the benefit of. It's it's fascinating. We touched on this at the beginning of our conversation, the difference between law enforcement and, and civil use cases of, of biometrics in terms of what you need to collect on a scan. And I'm wondering, how do you expect contactless technology to increase due to the COVID-19 pandemic when it comes to civil biometrics? Yeah, here I think it's going to go a lot faster. And already global entry has switched to using fingerprint scanners to just doing a, a face check against the, the face the picture that's in your passport. Uh, so that happened before COVID. So I think that it's just easier and that's likely to continue. You know, it'd be interesting to see for foreign nationals coming in if they ever uh, reduce the need to have touch fingerprints and instead use a contactless scanner to collect the fingerprints. That, that may happen sooner, uh, but n- maybe not so much in the near future because you still have to you still want to check those people against the terrorist database to make sure that they're not, um, you know, coming in that way. It's kind of more related to law enforcement in that sense. But for for all of the other civil applications, you know, you might imagine somebody that needs to go into an office building and and can either use a badge or they've used a fingerprint in the past. Um, in those cases, it doesn't make any sense to have anything that needs to be touched. So for for door entry and other applications that are similar to that, I think the contact list is going to kind of speed up as a result of COVID. Mm-hmm, absolutely, especially in those high throughput environments, for sure. Yeah. For citizens in the public trust, I just want to kind of move back to you'd you'd mentioned the biometric background checks. Adding biometrics into the background check scenario really does speed everything up. It does add a higher level of convenience and a higher level of trust just to make sure that, you know, you've got the right person and and it's just more accurate. How will biometrics play a role in the new economy of remote and contract workers? Yeah, I think in terms of authentication, um, it will certainly help. So if you have a remote worker logging on to systems using a biometric, you know that that person is who they are and uh, that they are working. I do wonder if more employers will collect data for the behavioral biometrics on their typing speed. The technology is there. Uh, we here at AJD Global have a, a solution that, that authenticates you continuously by measuring your typing speed. So it, it's possible that that could be also used to measure productivity. Uh, our, our solution doesn't do that now. I'm not sure if anybody says technologically it's possible, uh, but maybe that's going too far into the, the privacy discussion. So. Yeah, other than that, I'm not. I'm not quite. It's not a clear picture yet on how biometrics is going to play a, a heavy role in the remote and the contract workers. But just anyway, a few thoughts there. It is that is a fascinating idea, though, of the adding a continuous authentication layer um, yep. onto 
remote sessions like that. I kind of want to bring everything back together and look ahead of the current pandemic situation. What will the future bring post-COVID for each of the market sectors that we've talked about today? Yeah, sure. I'll sort of be repeating a little bit, but yeah, just to maybe summarize and, and wrap it up a bit. So for, for law enforcement, we certainly don't anticipate a move away from touch-based fingerprinting in the near future, let's say the next five years. One thought we have, back to my comment on the cell phone and rapid ID, we're hoping that maybe uh, we and other companies can convince the FBI that we can submit those records from a cell phone camera as a latent print and then get a check against the, the national systems. And maybe that'll happen somewhere else besides the U.S. Uh, first. Um, the FBI is very proud and for good reasons on the amount of quality that they have in their system. And they have very, very high match rates based on, on the quality standards that they enforce through um, NIST and, F and the Appendix F and um, the PIP uh, ratings. So uh, we'll see how that evolves over time. But yeah, for now, the law enforcement is likely to stay with the, the touch base. And then in terms of the military, yeah, there will be more off-the-shelf devices. And, and I think that they there, there already is quite a few ways to identify people that don't require touching them or having them touch some device. So again, this goes to our privacy discussion of, you know, should, should we be identifying people that are just in the wild? And uh, there's, some, there's some people around the world or countries around the world that use the Google Glass, for example, to continuously scan, scan crowds and soccer, soccer stadiums and things and looking to find people that are wanted for arrest. So, you know, we can imagine the military would use the same kind of technology to find people that are also on the, on the bad person list. But uh, yeah, for now, I, I, you know, I think that the, the, with COVID, uh, there will be more of a desire to try to do things that don't require touching. And then for the civil, this I think it's easier to, to do more on the, on the touch list. But, um, you know, back to the social media, we know that Google and Facebook and, uh, you know, Google Maps is, you know, you can look up your history of all the places that you're driven. And, and we, we've all given our permission to that as we click through the, the user agreements. But, uh, you know, for a long time, we, most people were blindly clicking through that and it was hard to turn that off. So I think now, the public is becoming more aware of, of what's available in terms of information on them. So I, I think uh, for the, the civil spaces, it may actually reverse a little bit so that people become more aware of their of their privacy. And, and certainly in Europe, they put a big focus on it with GDPR. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how the, the balance goes between the convenience and privacy and security and different places that are doing it differently. And yeah, so uh, it, it's definitely going to evolve over time. So yeah, those are my thoughts. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, as we've mentioned multiple times in this conversation, each one of these areas could have had its own full podcast discussion or, you know, there are entire sure. conferences about some of these. So uh, if yeah. any listeners are interested in getting in touch with you, how would you suggest they do that? Yeah, my email is russ.mcgonigal at hidglobal.com. I'll spell it. It's R-U-S-S dot M-E-G-O-N-I-G-A-L at hidglobal.com. Fantastic. Well, Russ, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I had a great time. Yeah. And I hope you'll join us again sometime. Yeah. Thanks so much. I had a good time as well. I really appreciate it. And so concludes my interview with Russ McGonigal, Senior Product Manager of Biometric Hardware at HID Global. To learn more about the topics discussed in this episode, visit hidglobal.com citizen identity or follow the link in the show notes. 
And to stay up to date on all the most important developments in biometrics and identity management, stay posted to findbiometrics.com. I would like to thank Russ again for joining me on today's episode, and thank you to Logamrad for the use of our podcast theme music. I have been your host, Peter Counter. Thank you for listening to the ID Talk podcast. Mm-hmm.